Few things in life get our attention like death, whether it's the awful tragedy of a school shooting or the passing of a loved one who has suffered with disease for months. Death is like a thief that shatters hopes and dreams and leaves us racked with grief. We remember where we were when we got the news of the death of a loved one or heard about the passing of some famous person. Uh, when death hits, it can feel stifling. We struggle sometimes. It feels like time stands still and we're not even sure what to do next when it's a family member or loved one. Death is this way for several reasons. The finality of death, obviously. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in life that can be fixed and or apologized for or dealt with in some form or another, but when the soul leaves the body, that is irreversible from our plane here. Death also means separation. It cuts off the enjoyment that we have of sweet fellowship with people that we love, people that we enjoy being together with. We are separated from that experience, and death is unnatural. God created man with access to the tree of life and said those who would eat of that tree would live forever. That was God's design. It was very good. His design was perfect, sinless, and without death. And then Adam and Eve rebelled. And sin entered God's creation and through sin, death. That's the words of Romans 5.12. Death entered the world through sin and spread to all men. And ever since, death has been man's relentless enemy, provoking fear and grief and pain. For those who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, death is an overwhelming conqueror and inescapable. It destroys its enemies. I'd like you to open this morning to John chapter 11, if you have your Bible, or bring it up on your device, John chapter 11, as we return to the gospel of John. We are going to see in this passage a titanic clash between the Lord of life and the dread of death. We will see Jesus Christ staring into the face of death. John 11 records what is really the, the pivotal and near final major miracle, if you will, for the life of Jesus Christ for his earthly ministry. It sets the stage for the end of that ministry because, in effect, it turns many to him in faith, and at the same time, what that does is provoke his opponents all the more to seek his death. John 11 also holds a profound lesson for you and I as believers in Christ in how we should view death. Through the eyes of Jesus, we see death as a terrible enemy for all of mankind, but as a defeated enemy for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. We're going to walk through this chapter in essentially four sections. You have the outline there in your bulletin. And, and let's begin just by looking at verses uh, 1 through 17, just to start with John chapter 11, 1 through 17. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. 
disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you seeking, or are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So there's no time marker on this, as we sometimes get in John's Gospel, sort of separated out by various feasts so that we can place where this is. But clearly we know this is near the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. It is after the Feast of Dedication, which took place uh, around December, and it is before the spring Passover, at which time Jesus would be crucified. So it is that late winter, early spring period. John 10.40 that we looked at last time tells us that Jesus had already left Jerusalem and went across the Jordan uh, as the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. He's in the area of Perea or somewhere to the north. I can't project a map to you today, but if you were to see Jerusalem here, the little town of Bethany is right next to it, and then you'd go out east across the Jordan River, and the region of Perea is over here, and so he's somewhere in this region, or perhaps a little north of that, probably about a couple of days' journey away. And This is where the disciples are with Jesus, when his friends Mary and Martha now see that Lazarus's sickness is appearing to lead to death, and so they send this messenger to Jesus to call him to come back probably a journey of a couple of days just for the messenger to get from Bethany near Jerusalem out to this region where Jesus is. But it says then in verse 6 that when Jesus heard the news, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So we're going to look at this in four sections. This first section is just the, the confusion of those who followed Jesus, the confusion of his disciples over some of the things Jesus does, starting with this one, this delay in going to Lazarus. When Jesus finally got to Bethany, Lazarus was already in the tomb for four days, it says in verse 17. He had already died. In other words, he died about the same time the messenger got to Jesus. Assuming a couple of days' journey and the two-day delay by Jesus, it was right about the time that the messenger got there uh, that Lazarus died, and yet Jesus waited two more days and then traveled. The delay on purely practical grounds could be explained on the basis that it would not have made any difference in the sense that if Jesus already knew that Lazarus had died at the time the messenger came, then the, the delay was not all that crucial at that point. However, we also know that Jesus from a distance could have healed Lazarus. We saw him do that in John chapter 4 when the official came to him pleading for his son's life. And Jesus says, you can go in faith and know that your son has been healed. So why didn't he do that? Why did he delay? I'm going to give you just three quick answers, I think, to that question. The first one is sort of the obvious one that we've seen before in the Gospel of John, and that is that it is God the Father who governs the timing and the steps of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus has made it abundantly clear that he will not move or act apart from reliance on the Father. He will not move ahead of him. We saw that in chapter 7 when the, the, the brothers, the earthly brothers of Jesus, were encouraging him to rush down to the feast in Jerusalem and show himself there, take advantage of the big stage in Jerusalem. And, and Jesus' response is, my time has not yet fully come and he waited again just a short period of time before he went in what was then the Father's time for, his to go, for him to go. Now, Jesus yielded his time and activities to God the Father. He would move no sooner or later than the Father willed for him. That's the first answer. I think the second one perhaps is related to an ancient rabbinic belief about the soul and death. There was a belief that the soul, as it came out of the body at death, hovered in the area of the body and around the body for three days before then departing completely. Again, this is a rabbinic belief tradition that was passed down, somewhat of a superstition, um, that, that probably came more than anything from just what was common observation of the body after death. And by the time you got to the fourth day, the body was now entering into decay and the effects of death were becoming irreversible, if you will, and so the soul, therefore, would depart. That was the, the idea in that. Uh, if you look down for a, a moment at verse 39, when Jesus said, Take away the stone, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Whether or not they believed the rabbinic superstition, it is very clear that they knew that by the fourth day after his death, this was irreversible. There was nothing that could be done here. And so Jesus, by delaying, establishes the certainty of death. There is no sense here that there is something quick that happens, some sort of resuscitation. It is, in fact, made abundantly clear to all those who have come even from Jerusalem to join Mary and Martha, there is mourning over this one who is dead and gone now in his fourth day. Then the third reason I think is a little bit more important, and it's one that we need to just see in terms of grammar in verse 6, which begins, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill. In the Greek, it begins with two conjunctions there, and, and it is better translated as since, therefore, or when, therefore. It's got the word therefore there in the originally Greek, original Greek, and so that immediately should strike us as causal. What, what's the connection here? It points back to verse 5, so verse 6 is an explanation of something just said in verse 5. This, therefore, that. So, We've got verse 5 saying, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus since therefore, or therefore since, or therefore when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So the third answer to this is his delay is explained by his love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now that may seem odd to this, but what it means really is Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus so deeply that therefore he would not violate the will of God or change God's timing in some way to rush to their call. It's a good reminder for you and I because when you and I are in situations that we deem to be urgent and we plead for God to fix, change, do something with it, we tend to want the fix immediately, as, as, as quickly as we can. God, please do this now, and here is Jesus, 
acting out of love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in delaying and not coming right away. Jesus loved them so much that he would not do anything less than God intended. Jesus loved them so much that he would not arrive before the day when there was absolute certainty that Lazarus was dead so that he could show them, ultimately, he loved them so much that he could show them that he was Lord even over death. Think of the, the great encouragement that Paul gives us for believers in Romans chapter 8 when it talks about what shall separate us then from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, and he goes on to give a list uh, there, and then he says, no, it says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That passage, as so many in, in the New Testament do, reminds us that it is in these things that God is at work. God does not take us from them or remove them from us or guarantee us that we won't face tribulation or persecution or distress. What he says is, in all these things, you are more than conquerors. In all these things, you will experience the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We will experience suffering, and distress. Even death comes to the lives of Christians, but his care for us in these things is teaching us about the love of Christ. It's helping us to understand it that much better. God ordains trials and suffering for his people because he loves us. And that's what it's saying here in verses 5 and 6, that this delay that seemed almost unthinkable was because he loved Mary and Martha and was going to teach them some remarkable lesson here. It's not an easy lesson when we're suffering, is it? That, that Jesus is showing us his love, and that he is loving us in, in ordaining this situation in our life. When trials hit, do you take time to meditate on Christ's love for you? Do you pause at those times and, and reflect on the fact that nothing separates you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Do you, do you remember again in the midst of suffering that he is lavishing his mercy and kindness on you in that time? That he is with you and he is strengthening you? Do you remind yourself that he's sovereign over these events and therefore I can trust him, know that he's in control, he's growing me through those? So this first element of confusion for those who are following Jesus, is this delay. The second point is the actual death of Lazarus. Had to be a point of confusion, especially in light of what Jesus said in verse 4. When the messenger comes and says, he whom you love is ill, and Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The disciples were there. The messenger heard this. Jesus Christ saying, this illness will not lead to death. The assumption then is that he's, he's not going to die, that, that Jesus will somehow do a healing, probably from a distance in some way, that, that Jesus will transform this situation, and, and, and that the final outcome will not be death. Now, we understand from what we have in Scripture that was true. The final outcome of this story is not death, but for the disciples, that's what we, we see them being confused when Jesus speaks of Lazarus sleeping, and then says he's going to go awaken him, and, and the disciples are like, well, he's resting. You know, he's just been through sickness and healing, so you don't need to awaken him. Just let him rest, because that's what we need, right? And Jesus then says, no, he's dead. They were not expecting Jesus to go back to Jerusalem. 
I mean, that's the other aspect of this, is he is a wanted man. They, they've tried to stone him before. And so now this, this confusion is sort of building. What do you mean he's dead? What do you mean we have to go back there? Can't we just do this from a distance? Because they, they're going to kill you when you go back. And in fact, Thomas sort of speaks for the group at this point when he says, well, let us all go so we may die with him. Because they've got that attitude now that this is going to turn ugly for all of us. I, you would imagine, too, that there's confusion for Mary and Martha. Because you've got a messenger who comes back who is happy, who is perhaps racing back to them to say, the master said this illness will not end in death, and by that point Lazarus has already been dead for probably two days. Ah, you're a little late with that. I, you must have misunderstood. Something got lost in the message there because he's dead. He's been dead. And so you have to assume that there's at least some level of confusion on, on, on what Jesus means here and how he could say that. So let's read on. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Let's pause there for just a moment. We've seen first the potential for confusion among the followers of Jesus. The second thing here is the confidence of Martha. It is a confidence that still needs some maturing and some growth, but she clearly has an enduring faith in Jesus Christ. Her words in verse 21 are sometimes misperceived as being sort of complaining or maybe a slight rebuke when she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I would submit to you that this is actually a great statement of her faith. And what she is saying is, I know that we, we tried and we did everything we could for Lazarus and none of it helped, but if you had been here, I have full confidence that he would not have died because I understand your power and your greatness. And, and that's why, in fact, she says that I know even now that if anything you ask of God, God will give you. I'm not sure at that point that she's so much thinking of him rising from the tomb because she doesn't seem to indicate that. It is more a statement of her faith at that point. I knew before Lazarus died that you could stop this, and even though you didn't and you weren't here, I still have full confidence in you that whatever you ask of God, God will do for you. I've, her faith has not been shaken by virtue of the, the death of her brother at this point. And so Jesus responds by promising this raising of Lazarus. Your brother will rise again in verse 23, which Mar Martha accepts as true. She's just off in her timing at this point. The, the debate amongst Jews in that time was between the Pharisees who believed in a resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees who did not. Martha is clearly lining up on the side that says, oh, I do believe there is a resurrection of the dead. I have full faith in the fact that Lazarus will be resurrected one day. And so Jesus now sort of clarifies for her because it's now an issue of timing. This is going to happen a little more immediate than you think. And so his response some of the most memorable words of, of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. 
D.A. Carson has a great quote on what Jesus says to her in light of her statement that, okay, I, yeah, I believe in the resurrection on the last day, and, and Jesus is refocusing her here. And Carson says, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him alone who can provide it. He is turning her from consideration of what happens on the last day to looking at him and understanding that he is the resurrection and the life. That if she's going to be thinking about this resurrection, she is looking at the one who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus Christ who said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of, of life. I am the good shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am. Now here in John gives this statement that says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he now will describe that. He explains both of them there in verses 25 and 26 when he says what he means by that. First of all, he is the resurrection. I am the one who will raise you. Whoever believes in me, though he die, though he experience physical death, yet shall he live because I am the resurrection. I will raise him from the dead. And I am the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me, all those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, have a spiritual life that will never die. So we who are trusting in Jesus Christ have the hope of knowing that when the soul separates from the body, it does not go into oblivion or some state of limbo, but it actually goes into paradise to the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We continue to live on. We continue to experience the spiritual life that he has given us for all of eternity. And Jesus is saying here that resurrection and that life that's me. I am that. I am the one who gives resurrection and who gives life. And then he comes with a question. Do you believe this? Martha's response is no cursory sort of, yep, I got that. Martha then confesses, and, and her statement is, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She doesn't merely say, yes, I believe you are the resurrection and the life, but what she is essentially saying there is, yes, in fact, for you to be the resurrection and the life, for you to raise the dead and keep people alive, you must be the Messiah. You must be the Son of God. And so her confession now is that much greater at this point. Yes, I believe that, because I believe you are the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. And she gives this marvelous profession of her confidence in him. For Martha, Jesus Christ was clearly the one who could raise the dead and give life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this about Jesus Christ? Have you put your hope fully in Jesus Christ as the resurrection and the life? Have you, as you've perhaps pondered your own mortality, what, where does your hope lie for life after death, when the day comes that your soul leaves your body? Do you have the kind of confidence, Martha does, of what will happen next when you breathe your last? Because this question that Jesus Christ put forward in, in verse 26 is a question for all of us. This is, this is John relaying to us again the whole theme of his gospel, which is these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have what? life, right? And here is Jesus saying, I am the one who is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? 
Don't be foolish to think that this is something that you can postpone on, that you can wait on, that you can somehow negotiate with God at some point later on to work your way into his good graces. You must respond to this claim by Jesus Christ, to the one who said, I am the light, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, now is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, he is your hope for life after death. So you have the the, the option here of either speculating that perhaps Jesus is lying about this or believing that this is true because this is no small claim. This goes to the, the C.S. Lewis, Lord, liar, lunatic sort of, of, of separation at this point because who says, I am the resurrection, I am the life, I am the giver of life, I raise the dead, unless it is one who can do that or one who is blatantly lying. Uh, I would... I would beg of you today that if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, that his question is for you. Do you believe this? Will you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Will you come to him and know that he has given his life in your place and, and has suffered and passed through death so that you and I might have life because of his death and resurrection? He is your only hope. There is no hope for resurrection apart from him. So the next section then starts in verse 28. When, when she had said this, this confession... She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let's pause there a minute. Mary came out to Jesus. She reiterates essentially what her sister has already said, and that is, Lord, I understand that you alone could have prevented this. You are the one who is powerful enough to have rescued Lazarus and kept him from dead. Again, I don't think it's a rebuke as much as it's a statement of fact in her mind, her belief that Jesus could have prevented this death. So then the response, when Jesus, verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? We have seen so far the confusion of some of the disciples. We've seen the confidence of Martha as well reiterated in Mary. And now we see the passion of Jesus. I want to think about verse 33 for a moment because it describes Jesus' response when Mary has come out and there are other mourners and they are all deeply grieving. And verse 33 says of Jesus, he was deeply moved in his spirit, deeply moved within and greatly troubled. That Greek word behind deeply moved is very interesting, commonly used outside the New Testament to speak of rage, anger, or indignation. Common reference to it. In the New Testament, it's used rarely, but a couple of places, Matthew 9.30 and Mark 1.43, describe Jesus giving a stern warning to those he healed. So when we look at verse 33 in the, the translation of it here, it is an expression that indicates severity. Something forceful 
bordering on angry, indignation. Unfortunately, most of our English translations when it comes to this verse have left it somewhat ambiguous by saying Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. They've sort of left the nature of his emotion um, kind of up for grabs, not, not being specific here, leading most people to read this and go, well, he was, he's just overwhelmed with grief, obviously, because Lazarus has died and these, these individuals around him are grieving and, and he is now deeply moved in his spirit. So Jesus also is grieving. But I would suggest to you first that, that the wording there it also holds some clues for us. And then the second phrase that's used in verse 33 says, he was greatly troubled. The word there means agitated or stirred up. So there's, there's more here than just some vague sense of emotion. One commentator puts it this way, polite English translations have failed to give sufficient negative impact to the Greek words in the sentence. There is a sense here in which Jesus is disgusted, perturbed, taken with indignation. It is not a mere sorrow, but it is something that is along the lines of a righteous anger. He is not grieving Lazarus in the same way as the others around him because he knows what he is about to do. Certainly there is grief at Lazarus' passing, but he also knows where, where this is headed, and so he's not grieving in the same way as them. So again, what, what would this anger or indignation be toward? Look at verse 38, because it repeats the one word again. Verse 38 says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. There it is again. That Jesus is asked to go where Lazarus has been laid. They have taken him to the tomb. He is now standing outside of this tomb with this stone that is in front of it. And again, there is this sense of indignation in, in Jesus, this sense of outrage at this point. There's a passion arising in him. We also see it in the verse that is the subject of numerous Bible trivia contests, which is what is the shortest verse in the Bible? John 11:35. Jesus wept. There again, John is giving us a glimpse into the passion that Jesus is experiencing at this moment. That word for wept is not the same as the, the crying and the mourning of those who are with Mary and Martha who are alongside. It is a word that essentially conveys the fact that Jesus shed tears. He was experiencing some form of, of pain. Why? What is that? Let me suggest two answers that are not mutually exclusive. I think that they, they overlap rather well. Um, one is, there is sorrow. There is sorrow not only for just the, the simple passing of his friend, but also there's a, a bit of sorrow for the measure of unbelief on the, on the part of the mourners around them, uh, that, that stand around Jesus at this point. Despite Jesus' assurance that the final outcome of Lazarus' sickness would not end in death, it was still as if all of those grieving were like Paul described in 1 Thessalonians, those who grieve with no hope. Remember Paul admonishing the Thessalonians about loved ones who had passed away. Grieve, but don't grieve as those who have no hope because you have something different. And here is the Lord of life standing in their midst, and it's almost as if they are oblivious to that in the midst of their grief. So there's a degree to which there is unbelief here, but I think much more than that. We are, we are witnessing the Son of God who breathed life into dust 
to create man, we are seeing the resurrection and the life standing before the enemy of death. Jesus Christ is deeply moved first at the mourners, and now he stands in front of the tomb, and he is deeply moved in spirit. Nowhere do we see the effects of the fall of man played out more clearly than in death. Death is a consequence of sin, of sin that has caused this to be a fallen world. And here is Jesus standing in front of the tomb of a friend surrounded by the heartbroken grief of that friend's loved ones and family. And it is a vivid reminder that even when we have hope beyond the grave, when it is a loved one who has passed, who is trusting in Jesus Christ, death is still an adversary. Death is still a terrible enemy. Death is still a consequence of a world that is plunged in sin and unbelief. In John 8:44, Jesus described the devil as a murderer from the beginning. His intent is on death and destruction. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Death, even the death of a believer in Jesus Christ, is a reminder of the broken and fallen world we live in that will be that way until Jesus Christ returns. And Revelation 21.4 says when we are in his presence and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. We long for that day. John Calvin wrote this, picturing Christ in front of the tomb. Christ does not come to the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder he groans again, for the violent tyranny of death that he had to overcome stands before his eyes. This passion, this indignation is the intense reaction of the Lord of life, of our Savior, to the great enemies of sin and death that were before him, and in some part to the unbelief that is around him at that moment. The school shooting in Texas on Friday provokes anger and sorrow and outrage, as it rightly should. But as believers in Jesus Christ, death itself should stir a sense of revulsion in us because it is contrary to our Lord of life, who is the giver and sustainer of life. That's why we, we talk about in the Christian community a culture of life, because ours is a God who raise, raises the dead, who is the giver of life. We are people who should long for that day that Paul described in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, is the day when the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It will be Jesus Christ who will put down that enemy, the one who has conquered Sin, who has paid the price for sin, will destroy the last enemy, and that being death. So read on with me. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Stop there for a moment. The passion and weeping of Jesus should never be interpreted as weakness. This is a great confrontation that is being staged in this moment, and Jesus Christ is in full control. 
I give, give credit to, to Ryan Yoho. He and I were talking during the break, and he said, typically in movies, you got, when it comes to this sort of moment, you've got the, the superhero who just goes bam, 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 and just takes away all the opponents and just seems to be you know, in control and takes them all out. And then you've got the superhero who, who is sort of bound and comes with rage and, and, and just builds with rage and, and, and slays all the opponents. Only in Jesus Christ do we see that rage and indignation and yet complete control. He's calm in this moment, and he is confronting the enemy of death that he is about to overwhelm. And he commands that that stone in front of the tomb be, be rolled away, despite even the, the sensible objection of Martha. There's nothing wrong with what Martha says here. She's right, humanly speaking. Rolling away the stone to reveal a day's old corpse seemed absurd at, at best at that moment. And yet in his reply to Martha, Jesus sums up the point of all that he is doing here, the thing that he had said, if they had all listened carefully back at the beginning when he said this ultimately will not end in death, it is, verse 4, for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so here in verse 40, he says, didn't I tell you if you believed he would see the glory of God? All of this is geared toward magnifying the power of God, in particular magnifying the power of God over death to show that the Lord of life overcomes death and the Son will be glorified through this. So verse 41, so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. An amazing story. We have the disciples and their confusion to try to understand this. Martha's great confession, her confidence, the passion of Jesus in this confrontation. And finally, it is the raising of Lazarus itself. And Jesus, even in the raising is teaching us as his followers. By his praying at that moment, he even says, I'm praying in this manner for their benefit, for John's benefit, so he'll record this, and for the benefit of all those standing around, so that we would see that here again, when the powerful Lord of life is about to raise the dead, even then, he is in full submission to his heavenly Father. He's doing what the Father has willed, and he is demonstrating for us humble dependence and obedience to God the Father. He says I, he didn't have to pray out loud. He didn't have to show that he was subordinate in, in, in function, I should say, that he was submitting his will to the fathers to do what the, the, the Father had ordained at that moment. But he does in prayer to make the point again to us, if this is what the Lord of life who can call the dead out of the grave does, he prays to his Father, how much more ought we to, to be crying out and, and striving with in prayer our God and depending on him, knowing that we must rest in him, in his obedience. By his prayer, he's teaching us to look to the Father and modeling that kind of humble dependence. In his last great miracle, Jesus is, is taking the opportunity again to point our eyes heavenward one more time, to look to the Father and to see him glorified in this. And at that, Jesus called forth Lazarus. 
He'd spoken of this kind of thing earlier. Remember in John chapter 5, when Jesus, the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem are, they're debating who Jesus is. They're debating his claims of authority and, and, and trying to belittle Jesus in every way they can. And Jesus in John 5, 25 said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So that even now... If I speak forth to the dead, I will raise the dead. He said it again in, in John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The raising of Lazarus is a foretaste of that great day. It was not a resurrection in the fullest sense of the word because for Lazarus, there was still going to be a time when he died, when he experienced death once more. But what Jesus Christ has done this day, all that happens in that little town of Bethany, right through the righteous anger and indignation of Jesus, serves to reinforce something that we've, we've known by experience, but we're seeing here in our Savior, and that is death is a terrible enemy. And he doesn't approach it lightly. He doesn't approach it flippantly. He rather groans in his spirit. He is angry and indignant at the sin and the death that stands before him. Death is a terrible enemy. For some who battle long-term illness, death may, may offer some sense of relief, but even then, we don't long for death. We don't long for illness that leads to death. We understand the hostility that there is toward death. It is a bitter enemy. It is a consequence of being fallen sinners living, living in a fallen creation. But he also undoubtedly demonstrates for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ that death is a defeated enemy. Its pain and separation are temporary. To be absent from the body is to be present with our Lord and Savior and to await that great day of resurrection. When, as Paul writes in Thessalonians, we will meet those who at the coming of Christ, we will meet together with them in the air. Not only those who have gone on before us, who are already in his presence, those who still are to die, there will be a resurrection of those bodies, new bodies, and there will be that reunion that we long for because death is ultimately a defeated enemy. And the miracle of Lazarus is meant to give us that hope. It is meant to reassure us that neither death nor life nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can do that because we belong to the Lord of life. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ today, then you should have hope. You should not have fear. When that day comes that you breathe your last and your soul slips from this earthly shell, we have seen demonstrated again that Jesus is the Lord of life. If you belong to the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, then we have that hope in his great power and his great grace. Do you believe this, Jesus says? Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a glorious plan of redemption that you who in eternity past, enjoyed sweet and perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit, would create this creation and put us in it, and we would rebel. 
remarkably, amidst all of your grace and your provision for us, man sins and seeks to imitate you and, and seeks to replace you and create his own gods. And yet in your mercy, you delivered up your son to be the sacrifice for sinners, to take our place the punishment that a fallen creation deserves for rebelling against its creator is a just punishment. It is death. And yet you have chosen to place your son in our place that we might have life. Thank you for that, Father. We pray that if there is anyone listening here, anyone in this place or, or, or listening to this even later, Lord, that if they are, if they are at all unsure of what would happen if this day death were to come. Lord, would you graciously today open their eyes to see that Jesus Christ surrendered his life to the cross to suffer and die for our sin, taking a penalty we deserve, and then rising again to be the ultimate conqueror over death and sin. And Lord, that only by believing in him can we join in as we celebrate it today in baptism. That, that glorious picture of being buried with our Savior in a death that is the likeness of his and being raised in the likeness of his life. Father, may we as people trusting in Jesus Christ cause us to live with a, a sense of courage, with a courage that comes from knowing that we belong to you, that nothing can separate us from your love that no threat from man, no persecution, no trial, no distress can pull us from your hand. Thank you that we belong to the Lord of life, to the one who declared himself to be the resurrection and the life. Lord, thank you for that great gospel of our hope and salvation. It's in the name of the Lord of life that we pray these things. Amen.